I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. Hey, we have the skull of a Catholic cannibal sitting in our office and we don't quite know what to do with it. I'm sorry, what? I'm going to need you to back this truck up a little bit. I'm Mark Fennell. You're, you're very theatrical. <laughs> no, you are. You it's are. the jazz hands, isn't it? <laughs> How did you become this creator? When it comes to me and making documentaries and, and podcasts and whatnot, I always say what I'm looking for is, is a small doorway into a big idea. I get off on new ideas. I get off on new stories. As soon as I find a story or an idea that I'm intrigued by, like, I completely vortex on it. I think history hides a lot behind politeness. And I think there is an impolite version of history that people don't like to tell. Mark Fennell, welcome to Straight Talk. It's lovely to be here. Now, your name, you know, it's funny, I... I, I haven't so much these days, but I drink over a period. I listen to the ABC a lot, and um, particular, I like radio. I love radio, and I, your name keeps coming up. I, I, I used to keep hearing your name on radio, and unavoidable. But on I'm ABC, like the plague. though, <laughs> yeah, you're haunting me. No, no, uh, on ABC. What, what, what was the capacity I kept hearing your name there? Why would the ABC be? Saying uh, well, there's field? a few things. I mean, I do. A, I've done a radio show for them for the last decade, which is a, a tech show called Download This Show. Yeah. Uh, I started a podcast for them uh, in 2020 called Stuff the British Style, which ended up becoming this sort of massive global hit and it ended up becoming a co-production between ABC and CBC and then we did a TV series and that I think that would have in that kind of uh, period would have been around. Um, I'm one of these weird people who I don't actually work for the ABC but I'm sort of uh, I do a lot of shows for them and, and SBS as well. So uh, I couldn't pinpoint it. I mean, the other thing is uh, I'm on, I do a quiz show for SBS that just plays every single night called Mastermind. So I am literally like a rash. I am around. You're busy then. I like to be busy, yeah. So who's Mark Fennell? He take me back a little bit. You look pretty young to me. Um, Thank you. Um, Flattery will get you everywhere, Mr. Yeah, Boris. It always does. <laughs> um, but, a bit, but it's all relative too. <laughs> I, I, that, that means I flatter everybody who's a guest <laughs> because everyone's younger than me. But if I go back, like how did you become this creator? Uh, okay. So I had a really unusual kind of start in media and, and journalism. I actually, when I finished high school, I had a grand plan that I was going to be a graphic designer by day and a filmmaker by night. Don't ask me why there was a day night separation, like the world's shittest superhero. Um, and so I, I started doing graphic design and I actually, the, the Australian Film Institute ran a young film critics competition 
And being, I'm half Singaporean, so I have Asian work ethic. So I entered three times and I won. And I ended up going to. And three different names? No, same same names. Uh, Look, their their entry processes could use some work. What can I say? Uh, And it turns out I won. And so I I went to community radio and said, hey, I can review movies. And, And actually, I think the thing most people will first remember me for is, um, I was I was the movie guy for Triple J for many years, and I think for a certain generation of Australians, I'm probably best known as that. Um, and but it all started with with being a film critic, and eventually it turned into making documentaries and interviewing people. And it, I, I chuck a lot of stuff at the wall. Is is the short version of it? I can take you through all of it. Hopefully, something sticks. Well, that I mean, yeah. my. My life attitude is I've been lucky a few times. I've been given really interesting opportunities. And I think when you get I think when you get lucky, you actually have to work to justify the the investment that the universe has put in you. So I do chuck a lot of stuff at the wall. I do try a lot of things and and I generally have a view to say yes. As I've gotten older and had kids and I, I'm, you know, I've just spent three months filming around the world and my, literally I've got mild jet lag marks, so bear with me here. But I do sometimes now think I actually don't have to say yes to everything. I actually can, I actually can pick and choose a bit more what I do, but my instinct is always, oh yeah, I wonder if I could do that. Let's try it. See what happens. So do you overcommit? Yeah, all the time. All the time. Uh, and I think some of it comes from like the first television show I did was actually do you remember the, the the movie show with David and Margaret? Yep. So when they left SBS to go to the ABC, they recast it with a group of young people and I was one of them. And I was 18 when I signed my contract, 19 when we started, and it got axed before I turned 21. And I do remember thinking, cool, so if I want to make stuff, I want to make TV, I want to make radio for a living, I'm always going to have to have at least two or three sources of income because this is an unreliable uh, industry. And I've maintained that ever since. I've never had less than three jobs at any one time. But always in the same industry. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, more or less. And I think because of that mentality, I've always been of the belief that you should always have multiple fingers in multiple pies. And it, it's been surprising to me what's sort of stuck over the years. Like I, if you told me that, you know, making documentaries or making podcasts, if you told me that that would actually have become like a thing you can genuinely live off, um, I would have been like, no. No, that's madness. At the time. At the time. But now, I mean, I think the the mixture of, of what I do is like I, I, I describe what I do now as I'm, I'm just professionally curious and I turn them into stories, whether they're television shows or podcast documentaries for Audible or the ABC, whoever. My job is to be professionally curious and work out how to t- take that curiosity and turn it into stories that other people would like to buy into, would like to listen to or, or read or, or watch. And I think so long as I kind of, maintain that curiosity as long as I as long as I finding stories and things I'm like actually I really do want to spend six months of my life exploring that then I'm doing okay but if you lose your sense of curiosity if you lose your sense of excitement about a story or a character or something like that that's usually the cue that you need to start shoving your energies in a different direction I I find for me anyway I I want to come back to a bit curious in a second because because I, I find that is one of the most powerful emotions that we have, um, particularly if you're in business, mm. in, in a creative industry, business and creativity, where they, those two to go together, curiosity is like like the most important ingredient, I think. But I just want to quickly go back because you said something really important to me, um, that you have this work ethic, um, and which is one of the reasons why, you know, you did a number of jobs and uh, and you you take it back to your that part of you that has that Singaporean sort of work <laughs> ethic in you. Mum was going to be thrilled that you pulled that, that part out. And yeah. that's your mum, right? Yeah, totally, okay. yeah. So I often wonder, and like I have a, a similar sort of work ethic against the Greek side of me, like, mm. and, you know, and, but 
what I know now today when I reflect on myself as having had done over a number of years is that it's not so much a work ethic, it was more an insecurity. Yeah. Um, and uh, have you ever thought that through? Like do you, do you think by osmosis you've inherited your mum's insecurity? Don't stuff it up. Yeah, I think it's actually, um, in fairness to both of my parents, my dad my dad was a small business owner. He was a photographer throughout my childhood and I, you know, my, I would spend all of my um, summers hanging out with dad in, in studios while he took photos and being his assistant. So I grew up with a front row seat to a small business owner on one hand and on the other hand, mum comes from a culture where, um, you know, you you look for a stable job. Like all of my my mum's family in Singapore, they are, you know, all the kids, the successful ones, they ended up like, you know, doctors and lawyers, like proper proper Indian <laughs> jobs. Sorry, I should say Singapore and Indian is, is yeah. the combination there. And I think when I was young and I, I sort of embarked upon this media career, I think it was challenging for mum to, to kind of go. Totally. What like you could have been a teacher, which is I, I you know, and I, I, I probably still would have been a teacher. And you I, are and a I, teacher. Well, it, in a sense, part of my job is that. Yeah. Yes, but I think it is pretty consistent across first generation immigrants of any culture, particularly in Australia, which is like your parents really generally worked quite hard to get you here. I, my brother and I, are the first, my my parents are the first generation of any either side of their family to actually get university education. And my brother and I come along and I'm like, he says, I'm going to be a rock star and I'm going to review movies for a living. My mum in particular probably struggled with it for a couple of years until she started seeing me on TV and having like a, you know, being able to buy a house and, you know, the, the, the markers of suburban success. Um, now I think it's 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 quite different, but it is you know it is a career that has an inbuilt instability to it, and you have to kind. Of, I've my advice to young people when they come to me and talk about careers in the media and see the unusual mixture of people I work for, but that you know the public broadcasters or Amazon or whoever is try a lot of things. Just try a lot of things because you don't know, A, what you're actually going to be good at. And you also don't know what this industry is going to look like in five years time. So try a lot of things. And and I think you have, particularly in a media career, it's very easy for people in media careers to rely on external external validation, awards or ratings or downloads or whatever it is. You have to find joy and intrigue in the doing because if you don't have that, some, you will make an amazing series. You'll make an amazing uh, book or whatever it is. And there is no guarantee of success there. But if you are if you are finding joy in the making of it, it won't feel like a failure. It, the rest of the world may regard it as a failure or a massive success, but I think the moment you become too reliant on external validation, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, you create this really dangerous, you actually are surrendering too much of your self-esteem to something you cannot control. And I've particularly, you know, ending up in on-camera careers, um, it's really easy to to sort of surrender your self-esteem to uh, awards or ratings or, or whatever external validation is de rigueur at the time. And I think it's generally speaking, my advice is to like find joy in the actual making of what you do and don't rely too heavily on the rest of the world to tell you if it's good or not. And that, I think it's really good advice. But at the same time, on the flip side of it, sometimes if you're running a model that relies on advertising, for example, mm. and or audience sizes relative to advertisers coming on, that's that's 
the, the media buyers. That's usually what they hone in yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, you won an award, not best, blah, blah, blah. And also as a result of that, the, the audience is, you know, this big and it's got this and it's this type of demographic. Yes, we want to advertise on which therefore we'll spend money. That usually drives how much money they're going to spend and how often they're going to spend on you. So it's a, you've got to sort of balance the two up. But I agree, in your person, yeah, you can't allow that to be the thing, the thing that defines you. I should say I am the most obsessive person when it comes to metrics. Um, whether it's TV ratings on shows I make or download numbers on podcasts I make, I am obsessive about them. But I've realised over the years that the the success, I think it's particularly noticeable in television because success in television is not, it is not, there is not a direct line to the quality of the thing that you've made. It is often about are you up against maths? You know, it's about the entire yeah. ecosystem. Is it after Anzac Day, like when people are actually home watching TV, like all of those different factors come in. And, and you know, as a person that makes this stuff for a living, I, I do I do pay attention to that. But it's about sort of disaggregating the product and the person. Yeah, right? it doesn't that, define you. Exactly, and that's the difference. And I think that took me a long time to work out. So you, you said something really interesting because a lot of people, you know, like whether it's journalism or, or, or media or any other thing for that matter, some, some other sort of startup, um, one of the things they – can get quite exhausted doing is trying everything. Hmm. Everything's everything's a chance. Um, and uh, and you said earlier on, just do everything, just try, <laughs> try everything. But it, it can be quite exhausting. It can be quite debilitating, particularly when nothing seems to be succeeding. Um, how do you manage that process? Because uh, especially when you kicked it off, when you yeah. were trying to do everything. I mean, you, you, know, you had three jobs, but you probably were looking at a thousand different things at any one time. Always someone's coming to you with an idea or you see an idea or you create an idea or you interpret an idea that's something you've seen and all of a sudden you've got six things going on <laughs> and like, uh, you know, you're working to 10, 11 o'clock at night, you're getting up again at six in the morning, um, you know, you might be just together with a partner, you might be just about to have a kid all this, these competing interests, Yeah, how did you work your way through that stuff? Not always well. Like yeah. to be real, anybody that pretends like they, they can juggle this stuff is probably lying and definitely lying to themselves. I've got two kids. I've just spent three months on the road around the world filming a show. It's it's not um, the, it, like the concept of work-life balance is like this nice ephemeral thing that I don't think it, 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 it's really distinct for every person, every family, every combination. To come back to your actual question about how how do you manage it, um, I do burn out. I usually don't realise it until too late. I don't realise it until I've got this big long list. I'm like, what the fuck did I do? Um, Or what do I do now? Or what do I do now? Right? You're committed. Yeah, exactly. You can't. I don't back out of things. Like you just you just do them. Yeah, yeah. um, And you do them until three o'clock in the morning. The the last couple of years, I I probably have hit this sort of moment where I've just been like, I, I can't do all of it. I, I kind of had this conversation with some of the people I work with, which is I can do it all. I just can't do it all at the same time. So we can do that project, but you will have to wait until October. And I think that's really hard because you're, the, the sort of your scarcity mentality tells you, no, 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 bite up more than you, you can chew now. You'll be fine. Just chew and get indigestion. But actually I found that when you've sort of reached a certain point, you actually can tell people, hey, I want to do this and I want to give it my proper attention and that means we can't do it till this point. And if things go through the keeper, then then that's okay. But the key for me is that the key for me is that having multiple things on the go actually I, for me, and this is maybe a weird me thing, I think it actually protects me to a degree because 
you can't guarantee success of anything, whether it's a television series, a podcast, or whatever it is. You can't guarantee success of anything. So if you pour your heart and soul into something and it works, fantastic. If you pour your heart and soul into something and it doesn't perform the way you think it will, in a sense, it's okay because you've got two or three other things that you you move straight onto. What what it prevents for me is it prevents wallowing. And I've had a few times over the past where you're like, oh, you didn't get, uh, you didn't get a project up that you wanted, or you or you did and it didn't work. I'm probably quite prone to wallowing, and the constant buzz of new ideas and new creation does two things. One, it protects me from from stopping going. Mm, life's really sad. But it also means that that continual dopamine bump of finding some a new idea or a new character or, or somebody something that you're excited by that dopamine bump is is always is always either in the ascendancy or you're just coming down off it. And I find that's really helpful for me. Like I get off on new ideas, I get off on new stories. As soon as I find something, a, a story or an idea that I'm intrigued by, like I completely vortex on it and that you need to capture that buzz you need to capture that energy in that moment because because that's the where all the possibilities for what that can become are live in that moment if you let it sort of if you go if you push it to one side to um you know to too quickly you you're sort of sacrificing the the sort of creative energy and I'm always wary about letting go of that. So for me, it kind of busyness, there's too busy, there's burnout, but there is also a, a kind of a natural um, roller coaster that comes with it that you should kind of embrace to a degree. It, it seems to me, and I, and I sort of go through the same processes sometimes, um, you get addicted to the dopamine. Well, you, you get addicted to the buzz that you get out of a new project, particularly, and it actually, particularly when you first start it. And you, for, for, and you first start talking to other people about it and you get cross sort of fertilization from people, that whole buzz, everyone's getting the buzz and, oh, wow, it sounds like a great idea, let's do it, blah, blah, blah. And you start reading about it and you get more excited, more excited. That actually helps you in relation to other stuff you're doing too, sort of drags the other stuff along with it. Yes, it does. Yeah. It totally does. I think people – Because um, you can get tired on the other stuff. Exactly. And I – like this – and I – one of the things I've realised is I – Working at projects at different stages is really helpful. So um, I've just come off the back of, of shooting around the world for, for three months, but at the same time I was um, uh, for, for a new show for the ABC next year, but at the same time I was finishing off a three-part series that I've done for SBS and it was at the tail end and I was looking at all these like quite, you know, I was, I was looking at a, quite a finished product and looking at the finessing that we're doing at the end. Just stuff in post. Like, stuff in post, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was like... And I remember watching the stuff. I was sitting in a hotel room in the Amazon of all places watching something that I'd shot in WA around this time last year. And I was like, that's a good idea. We did do that. That worked well. I wonder if that idea for, you know, a shot or a sequence, I wonder if that can, we could do something similar on this thing that I'm shooting tomorrow. So there's there's a little natural benefit from having projects at different stages at any one moment and letting them cross-pollinate each other. Um, you know, I, when it comes to me and making documentaries and, and podcasts and whatnot, I always say what I'm looking for is, is a small doorway into a big idea. So one sort of, um, you know, one really accessible one line idea that you can say to people and they lean in and go, really? And that door and what the, the, the way to know if that's actually going to be a worthwhile project or worthwhile series is, is what does it open up? You know, so stuff the British stole is like, you know, objects taken in the days of the British empire. 
when you scratch the surface on them, it actually tells you how the British Empire really operated and how it changed our lives today. It's a small, quirky idea that opens up something big and that's often what I'm looking for. And as you get too deep into making anything when you've got mountains of interviews, it can be easy to kind of just your eyes get crossed and you go, I don't really know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> it's helpful to be on the other trajectory on something else to remind you that these things only work if there's a simple, clear idea you could explain to an audience and then it has to go somewhere and, and unveil something bigger. How important is it to you to be an adventurer? I mean, like you're, you're, not, <laughs> you're not climbing mountains, but but you are climbing mountains. So you are taking risks um, and you are pushing pushing boundaries. It's funny because I, if you ask my wife or my kids, they'll be like, Dad, you couldn't get past the first level of the Eiffel Tower. You have a shocking fear of heights. I'm like, I'm not, I'm actually basically quite a risk averse person. But if I think something's going to be worth traditional it, risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if the, if I think something's going to make <laughs> I, I will also do just about no, I'm a, I was about to say I'll do just about anything on camera. That's not true. I won't. But I, I do think that if I think going to the edge of a of a cliff or a desert or a jungle is going to help an audience understand something better then I'll absolutely do it, provided the money's there. <laughs> you know, like I, I, this this series that I'm working on, which is the the next series of Stuff the British Style comes out next year, we literally did deserts and, you know, cliffs in Ireland and Ireland and the Amazon jungle. And it's like, but it's not just for the sake of being an adventurer. It's, it's for the sake of telling a story and making sure that people who are sitting there eating their dinner at 8 o'clock at night on a Tuesday who are paying 10% of their attention, which is usually the amount of attention we pay to television, it's, it's, it's my job to bring you into a random chunk of history and part of that is about taking them on an adventure. It's not really about me going on an adventure, it's about taking them on an adventure and I take that quite seriously because that's, that's you know, why we live in an era where there's so much media, like there's tons of it. I'm competing with Netflix, Amazon, with everybody, right? If as, a, as an Australian television production you have to compete with what, everybody else in the world is offering. And I think part of that is about offering something that hopefully stands out. Uh, and I will go anywhere and, and show anything if I think it'll help an audience understand the story that I'm, that I'm trying to tell. Well, it's amazing. So all these various um, platforms, Netflix, Stan, all of them, Channel, ABC, whatever, mm. they're, they're, they're all telling stories. I mean, all the shows are about storytelling. Um, and storytelling has become a big thing. And, I mean, once upon a time no one actually talked about storytelling uh, as an art. Yeah. That's what you've been doing for a long time. Where does that come from? Like, what, have you always been someone like to tell, like, c c share your stories and/or your interpretation of things that are stories to other people? No. What I what what I did do, what I do recognise, I did from very young was um, listen. Because actually, I'm not usually telling the stories for myself. It's usually when you make documentaries. It, you, actually, what you're doing is you're curating other voices, and uh, uh, and that's the thing that I learnt quite early that I did. And I always feel weird saying this in interviews because when I hear I'm just rabbiting on about me. But one thing I realised very early on is I loved listening to other people tell their stories, and I love and I loved creating an environment where people felt comfortable sharing with me um, their life experience. So for about eight or nine years I did a, a current affairs show for SBS called The Feed and, and my primary job was just talk to famous people. And I loved the challenge of – people look down on celebrity interviews. I love the challenge of them because usually those are people that are bored. They've uh, they've tell the same stories a thousand times and I love the challenge of you've got 15 minutes with Tom Cruise or Jamie Lee Curtis, whoever it is, 
how do you create an environment where they feel comfortable showing an authentic side of them and they're intrigued enough to want to offer something of, of, of their life to a random Australian that they have no reason to care about? I like the challenge of creating environments where people feel comfortable sharing something that feels that is identifiably authentic, not just to them, but to the third person in the room of any conversation, which is the audience. And so that's probably the thing I port with me um, in, in throughout all of these, which is like, it's not just about me telling a story. It's about me painting a story with other, with other people's life experiences. And with that comes a bit of a responsibility, you know? So I think it's, it, it actually starts, says the guy who's rabbiting on about himself with listening. You're actually getting others to tell the story to you, yes. which you're then sharing with the rest of the audience. So you're not the storyteller. They're the storyteller. You're you're curating the storyteller about and the and the theme and all that other stuff. But you actually sort of want to sit back and listen to their story anyway. Yeah, it's it's interesting as an interviewer. At, at the end of the day, I still have to kind of piece it together. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, it is it's sort of both. Um, but I love the the you know when when the cameras are all set up and ready to go. It's it's really. It's this, mm. right? This is the thing that matters, right? And so I love that. Then there's the other part of my job, which is like sitting there with mountains of footage and going, all right, how do I arrange this in a way that somebody has, who, you know, you always have to assume the audience don't care about whatever it is you're doing. How do I arrange this in a way that they want to get on board with? They want to go on the adventure. They want to get to know this person. So they're, they're almost two completely different jobs in a way. Yeah, well, uh, have you always been prolific? Because, I mean, you are, no, you are. You're prolific in what you've produced all, all your life. I mean, it's an interesting observation that I would like to make is that, uh, that I find interesting for myself. I don't know if it's interesting for our audience, but um, people who I find are successful, successful people that I interview or success, successful people I've been involved with. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today tend to be quite prolific. They tend to speak quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and prolific means you get a lot of content out at the same time, yeah. you know, like really quickly yeah. and uh, and often and regularly and uh, without interruption, et cetera. And one of the things I've noticed about you is you are one of those people and you have – that is a hallmark for me of um, of successful people that I've known. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a condition precedent but it's a, it's a hallmark of people I've known. And right from the very get-go when you first sat down in that chair that you have been prolific in um, your content towards me. And uh, do you know that about yourself? Uh, I do now. Um, it's interesting. I – I did a show for the ABC many years ago, um, uh, which was a, it was called Hungry Beast. It was a very unusual program. It was run by Andrew Denton and he 
um, he basically brought on 19 young people and gave them this plum time slot after specs and specs and, and said, just tell me something I don't know. That was his instruction to us. Tell me something I don't know. And you've spoken to Kirk Docker, who yep. was also on that show. So we're, we're part of that same cohort and everybody's experience of it was slightly different. Um, but I remember the first season, I couldn't get a single story up. <laughs> I, just, I just kept pitching and pitching and pitching and nothing could get up. And I got, I was probably a right pain. Um, but I, my solution to that, my, I was definitely like whinging about it in season one, but my solution to that was to become militant. I was like, I am going to look at every hole available in this show and I'm going to work out what it's missing and I'm going to try and pitch something that fits into that. But it wasn't just militant out for my own benefit. I realised on that show the key to success is actually not trying to do it by yourself. It's collaborating. So I would find other people that worked on that program who I had aligned tastes and go, all right, you, you and you, let's make something together. And I've that's probably the thing I've I've like I, I I get that I make a lot of stuff, but the only way I can make a lot of stuff is I build relationships and partnerships with um with people that I like to work with and we collaborate. I, if I was doing if I was a one man band and trying to do everything by myself, I couldn't do it. What does work for me is building finding your tribes, finding your combinations of people, and working and having them run you know collaboratively. So um House of Skulls the 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 podcast I've got at the moment I worked with um. A producer, Palavik, um, who's in New York, and we 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 worked on it together. Um, I've got a series for SBS coming out later the, uh, with Corin, who's based in WA. So I work, I make partnerships with people that um, that we both feel like we get something out of. That's the way to do it. It's not just make a lot of stuff, which is probably how I made it sound earlier. It's find groups of people that you get make each other better, and then w- and make sure you invest as much into them as they do into you. And that's how I managed to make so much stuff across a year. It's not me. It's not me alone. It's me working with different combinations of people spread out, really, actually around the world. Um, and because I, you know, I'm I sort of maintain that um, at various different points, people have asked me why I haven't set up my own production company and uh, why I don't run run a, a business myself. And the reason is because I can achieve more if I partner with you know, uh, an ABC or a, an Audible or, you know, BBC. I can achieve more if I partner with organisations around the world than I can if I just try and build everything myself. And that's been really helpful. And 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 I learn from people. I learn from, you know, Canadian production companies. I learn from working with people in the UK. I'm better because of those relationships. And I think that's been a, the key to how much stuff comes out. It's not just one person. It's about relationships. Well, that, you've, that means you've worked out a way how to leverage yourself into being prolific by, by not by using, but by having collaborations and or sharing the burden with everybody. By the way, can I ask you, in ter- you said earlier on, and I, and I love this whole concept of curiosity. Mm. It's a big thing for me. Um, that's how I run my life. Um, curiosity um, is probably the starting point in terms of shows that you, or things you've, you've either collaborated on or you've created yourself. In terms of the House of Skulls, what was the curiosity piece of that that got you to do that or, uh, or even started the thought process? Yeah, it was – it's actually classic this because I was doing an interview with uh, a retired priest for something else and he just casually mentioned that one day he got a phone call from the US saying, hey, we have the skull 
of a Catholic cannibal sitting in our office and we don't quite know what to do with a it. A Catholic cannibal. A Catholic cannibal. And he was wow. like, I'm sorry, what? And he mentioned it so casually that I was a bit like, sorry, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, apparently there's this room in the basement of a university in America that has hundreds of human skulls from all around the world. I'm like, sorry, what? <laughs> and he just, he said it. It's, you know when people just say something in passing and then they just roll on and you're yeah. like, I'm going to need you to back this truck up a yeah. little bit. What are you talking about? And he just like, I, I, he, that's all he knew about it. And then he rattled on and we talked about other things. And as soon as I got off the phone with him, I essentially like cleared my afternoon and I just vortexed on this thing. And it was a... It's, obsessed. I became completely obsessed. Absolutely obsessed. And I... um. It was called the Morton Cranial Collection. It was this one guy who leveraged his networks of people all around the world to collect human skulls. And the reason he was doing it, he was trying to prove a theory, which is that you and I, all of us, we're actually not one race. We're different races. And different uh, races have different brain sizes, which means there's a hierarchy. And he was trying, basically trying to prove essentially white people are the smartest, brown people are the dumbest. What, what, what period is so this? So this is the 1900s. Okay. Okay, go on. And so, but... He the the weird thing is the collection still existed, and it wasn't just sitting in boxes. In 2014, they built a, a classroom at the University of Pennsylvania, and they put them on the walls, kind of not thinking that people might have an issue with this. And so the thing that stood out to me is, okay, firstly, why did he put it together? Sure, but also, what do they do with it now? And each one of those skulls was a person, and each one of those skulls is a story, and each one of those stories paints a picture of the world at a particular moment in time. And that was the starting point. And I remember writing down the House of Skulls because I knew from the beginning that's what we were going to call it. Titles either come really fast or they take forever is my my other <laughs> advice for anybody making things. If you have a title, write it down. Um, and it was the curiosity. I realised very quickly that the the engine of pick, uh, pick a different skull and, and, use, and try and tell the story of that style – these are people that had become specimens. And so my kind of mission was if I could take what little detail we have of those skulls and try and return their story back to them, find out what happened to them, how they ended up in that collection, I could tell a very big picture about, um, well, firstly about race and how the, because this guy, his, his theories ended up influencing a whole bunch of, um, you know, lawyers and doctors throughout America. It's kind of the beginning of this. It's kind of a crucial part of the story of race, not just in America, but around the world. But it's also a story of medical science because we, we're all the beneficiaries of, you know, centuries of medical science. It was built on grave robbing. Like that's how they learned about our anatomy. That's how they learned about, uh, you know, where, which bones connected to the which bone. So we're, we benefit, our medical science that we benefit from every day has this really grotty history that we don't really like to acknowledge. So it's also a bit about that as well. And so it's, it's a, it's a strange, you know, one strange little chapter, like footnote in history, but it connects to big things. It's about race. It's about science. It's about history. It's big things that actually do shape our lives. And there are skulls in that collection from every corner of the earth. There are skulls from Greece. There are skulls from India. There are skulls from Tasmania. There are skulls from everywhere. So it's, it was inherently global and incredibly niche at the same time. And I always look for stuff. I always look for stories that they may seem small, but they, they get very big, very fast. And they tell very big stories. You know, it's, it's quite fascinating. You, you started saying, tell me about that because as you were speaking, um, I was thinking about something that not many people know about, but and perhaps you do, but um, in the 19th century, the general view was 
a black person was not as intelligent as a white person as a, in that their brain didn't function and or perform the same as white persons and, in fact, that their brain was not as big. Yes. And that was in the as, – as I understand the history, it was in the 19th century. Anyway, and I'll tell you in a minute how I understand this. But um, there was a guy, a Russian guy called um, – and he was a, a zoologist mm. – um, and But in particular, a marine biologist, did a lot of marine studies. But one of the things he was famous for, allegedly famous for, his name was, I should just, uh, hopefully get his name right, his name was Nikolai Mikulovich Maclay. Hmm. And out of Sydney University there's a Maclay um, Museum. And in that museum um, are a number of brains of various dolphins and sharks and all sorts of things. But his biggest claim to fame whilst he was living in Russia because he ended up living in Australia is that he proved um, in Papua New Guinea that the black man's brain is not inferior to the white man's brain and actually because at the time the, the legislation, the, the world didn't allow people to black people to vote, all mm. sorts of things. It was, you know, society was a bit crazy on the basis of inferiority and he was the first person allegedly to prove that this is not the case. And um, and uh, and they actually named one of the coastlines of Papua New Guinea after this guy. There's a coastline <laughs> called Maclay, Maclay uh, Coast um, and his name is Nikolai Mikulovich Maclay. And I'll tell you the reason why I know who is he, he is. Is he your third cousin? Is that what this is No, he's like? not. He's not. <laughs> but I tell, you what, I tell you what's interesting about him. When he came to Australia, he needed a place to con- uh, conduct his studies and the uh, New South Wales government, because this is before federation, the New South Wales government raised money by subscription to build a house out of the local stone, uh, sandstone, which was like 100 metres away in a place called Green Point in Sydney, built this guy a house where he could conduct his studies on a beach where he could collect f- fish, etc., and various sharks, etc. And it was the v- first... Or the, the uh, first in the southern hemisphere, but the second in the world of marine biological station, and uh, and they put him in there. And at this stage, no one lived in the area. And this beach is is a Camco beach just beyond Watson's Bay at the South Head, and that's where I live today. That's my house. No, the house was built in eighteen seventy eight or something like that. And I live in that house, and <laughs> and that house has a permanent conservation order. And I allow people to come in there once a year to inspect the house and look at the room, which has a permanent conservation order. Where he used to do his experiments and cut shit up. And what's interesting in this house on the top level, in every room on the top level, it has skylights. So no one had skylights in those those idea those days, by the way. But he put skylights in these rooms that face that faced diff, the the arc of the sun. Yeah. So that the sunlight would come directly through, and he'd move after a couple of hours into the next room to continue to his experiments, and he moved the next room. And each of the, my rooms in the house on the top level, on the second level, um, have um, these weird looking skylights, and and uh, I actually. Um, I actually um, built rebuilt the house, and uh, in conjunction with a, a well-known um, um, conservation architect. But it's quite intriguing. This guy was very, very famous, and uh, he ended up marrying the premier's daughter in New South Wales. Um, who um, how, he was a good uh, networker. He married the premier's <laughs> daughter, and he went back to Russia, and he died unfortunately from um, you know, uh, 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 lung problems. But 
which is the reason he came to Australia, to get away from the Russian weather. Yeah. And, th- and what you're talking about, the House of Skulls, is quite interesting because he was getting inside this in, in human skulls to prove a point. Yeah. And your point is that someone else was going, going around the other way. Well, he is a re- – I mean, this is perfect. This is bizarre. No, it's been brilliant because he is a response – to um, Morton's cranial inflation. So he, you, you are living in essentially yep. the response yeah. to... Do you want to, to make an episode of my <laughs> joint? No. I mean, if I'd known about you months ago, we would have. We but you didn't know about me months ago. I What's wrong with you? I didn't know about your bloody house. <laughs> that's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, that's yeah, mad, eh? That is... Ama- so th- that... Th- that's I mean, why that's, I love these stories. Yeah, and this is the thing. It's, it's they're, they're mysteries. Like, I think... I always say with this stuff, like nobody wants nobody wants a lecture on decolonialism or or, or, or race. Nobody wants that, right? Yeah. Well, certain people do. Most people don't. But people love a treasure hunt. Mm. People love a mystery. And part of my job is to, you know, locate these aspects of history and go, how do I, how do I intrigue? How do I, how do I control the flow of information? so that it becomes, and you do this innately, like even the way you were telling that story, I'm like, where's he going with this? Where's he going with this, right? Arranging it in such a way that, it, that there's a little bit of um, information deficit, this vacuum where questions Purposely. Live, exactly, that pulls you through. And I love that. I love that that creation of that that feeling where people don't quite know where it's going or why it's going there, but you do feel this momentum pulling you through. That's fun. I've always loved doing that. Uh, 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 Mark, you're, you're 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 very theatrical. <laughs> no, you are. You it's are the jazz hands, isn't no, it? <laughs> no, but, no, but you are. You're very theatrical. Even your face is theatrical. To be frank with you, I mean that's what you're born with. I mean you can't help that's you know it's a good thing. In particularly in terms of, I want to get endorsed on LinkedIn for theatrical face. Just putting it. But out. we should put that out there. But no, but they need movement. <laughs> but like, but how important is theatre in what you do? You know, like you just talked about intrigue. I mean, yeah. I mean all parts of theatre. I don't mean just the facial expression, but the whole the whole theatre. I've never been asked that question before. Um, I guess it is quite important, isn't it? Otherwise, you might lose me. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You, I, I don't, it's. I'd never really thought about it before. Um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think th- there's always a challenge with because what I deal in is is factual storytelling, right? I'm not making stuff up. But there's still theatre attached to facts. Yeah, but I think there's a there's always a delicate dance with those things, right? Where you. I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, writing out treatments and looking at edits and scripts and stuff like that and just removing because if you remove a piece of info, like you remove information, what you do is you create questions. And I think a lot of the work that I do, even like when I'm telling a story or if I'm putting together a documentary, is like it's working out, I only ever tell the audience what they need to know when they need to know it, when it becomes important because when in that moment, uh, in that moment, you find the audience is most receptive to the idea, right? The way you help, like you could have told that story the other way around. You could have been like, so the house I live in belonged to, but you know, which is that that piece of information is so satisfying. It's so, it's so delicious if you put it at the end. And I think there is an, I think there is a nature about people. Some people know when to hold off. When something and comedians do it, which is know where the punchline actually lies, and where the, the where the payoff actually lies, and know when to to put the right you know sow the right seeds at the right moment, so not too far ahead because they'll they'll forget about it, but not too late because that it won't have an impact. I think there's a lot there is a bit of that that I I love, like I I've, and and I've sort of acquired it over the years. 
when I was at Triple J, I did these little movie reviews that were like two minutes. They used to sit in between songs. And I always used to say to people, the trick to writing that kind of radio is imagine you're talking to a uh, imagine you're in a very loud pub and you're talking to a friend who's a little bit drunk and not really paying attention to you because you learn really quickly. What's the one thing I can say to get your attention? What's the next thing I can say to keep you pulled, keep you pulled? Because you've got, you, you've got so much other pieces, you know, things competing for your attention. And I probably, I still spend more time now thinking about what my opening line is or what my opening, you know, pre-title sequence is, because that's the thing where you you, you are buying audience. You are buying audience's attention and you buy inch by inch by inch by inch. You don't buy, like, unless you're people, you're making something for the cinema where people bought a ticket and they're like, they're stuck in there. In broadcast media or digital media, you only really own the next 10 seconds. And then you have to keep giving people reasons to listen, to watch, right? And I think the 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 way you learn that is by talking to people a lot and paying attention to their face and working out, are they bored? Are they bored? Is, 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 are they eyes closing over? Oh, no, I've got them. They're excited. Like you can, I think you, that's the only real way to learn it. Like you've got to watch people's faces. You've got to tell lots of stories all the time and then watch their faces. And, and whenever I have an idea for a new series or something, I tell people. I'm not like one of those people who's like, I can't possibly tell people about my new project. It's secret. My thing is you go, you don't, you know, tweet about it, but you have a, a but prosecute it. Yeah. But like, exactly. Say to people, so I heard about this story about a, there's a room in a university that's filled with human skulls and just like watch their face. And then they're like, they're like, well, oh, it's boring. Or sorry, there's a what now? That's what I'm looking for because that tells me how to shape it. You know, in six months' time, I've got a bunch of interviews and I've got to lay it all out and bleh, I've got to cut a trailer for it. That people's initial reaction when you explain the idea is how you know where the, the shape of the idea should live. Um, and I think, you know, we there's all these apparatus of producing something, whether, like I said, trailers and, and, and edits and stuff like that, but actually... If you know where people, what the, what was the thing you said that hooked you? What was the thing you said that hooked somebody else? Remember that, bottle that, keep track of that because you're going to have to replicate that in a trailer, in an ad, in a one sheet or whatever it is in six months time. And I think it's, that's another reason why it's important to like, when you're excited, capture it, record it, not just the content, but why you cared. Is that worth you in the title? Because I mean, we, we, <laughs> no, because of the title, like the yeah. title is important. Like, like you said, you would want to write it down straight away, yeah. particularly the moment you got excited. I mean, people out there setting up businesses and they're looking for a business name. You, you got to p- prosecute the name to other people. Yeah. They see how they respond. Yeah, the best. I mean, the best example of that for me has been stuff the British stole because um, it's a great name. Well, it depends who you are, right? So that that title has been instrumental in making that show a hit. Like it. The biggest audience for that show is in the US by um, and uh, outside of Australia and Americans get it, people in any country that was colonised get it. You try going around London and booking locations with a show called Stuff the British Style. Ooh, it's very hard. So that title, you know, was the first thing pretty much that like I was like that's what it, I mean you have to call it that. And it was instrumental in making it what it is, but it it creates real problems. Like, you know, when you're trying to get people to, British people to talk to you, that oh, it couldn't possibly be able to show with that name. But in itself, isn't that a good thing? Though? I think it's, you have to upset somebody. Well, I, I mean, the thing with that show is I think history, particularly the history of the British Empire, hides a lot behind politeness. And I think there is an impolite version of history that people don't like to tell 
and it has to be told because all you need to do is go ask the other people, <laughs> the people that were colonised, and they'll tell you a very unvarnished version of their history. And that, a big part of that show is is like once you've got your, your object in a museum and how did it get there, it, the, the real thing is how did it get there? And the, the, when you start telling a story of how did this object get in the museum, what you've got to tell is a story of like what happened when the Britain, what happened when the British went to Kenya? What happened when they went to Australia? What, what do they What happened do when they went to Greece and they, they yeah they, they got the marbles? Exactly. I, I sat on a plane once with Richard Branson um, and uh, an archetypal um, entrepreneur who's great at coming up with the names, a virgin, and I said to him, because I was actually looking for a name for a business that I was about to start, which a company called Wizard, and um, he explained to me, I was lucky enough to sit next to him, he explained to me that the name Virgin was premised on something that was controversial um, and at the time. Like, you know, no one said the word Virgin at the time we come up with Virgin Records. And um, he said to me a couple of things. Mike, it doesn't matter with half the people don't like it and half the people do like it. He said at the end of the day people got to remember it. And yes. Said, and then, it, then they'll like it if you what you give to them off the back of the name is something they like. So get a name that they'll remember. So don't mm. go around sanitizing, oh shit, that might offend this mob or that might offend that mob. Mm. You know, you know, like that that's that doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if you offend half and you and half like it or whatever. It's just as long as they'll remember it, then it's the delivery of the product that they yes. like. Yes. And I and I thought that and he also says something quite interesting, you know, like in and um, you know, stuff the British stole. Um there's something quite significant in those in in that title. Stuff is a very good word. British is memorable. Stole is quite emotive. Um, he said to me in a word in his name in the word virgin. He said there are letters I like to hear and a name to be memorable. And he said they are strong letters like virgin, like the R, the, the V, the sharp letter. Yeah, 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 those two syllables. Uh, and but the sharpness of the letters make you 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 get a sense of feeling out of it. And uh, what you just told me, the stuff the the British stole. There's emotiveness in there. The British is well British, and uh, stuff is quite, quite you know that covers a, a broad spectrum, and mm. uh, and and it also says well, what does he mean by stuff? Yeah, and I think that's a very powerful title. And then titles, mate, title sell shows at yeah. the end of the day. I totally, don't give, I don't give a damn. But <laughs> the titles, titles, that sounds like a show. I don't, <laughs> I don't give a damn. That, there's a there's yeah, there's, yeah. But like, but it's funny. People are always saying, "Oh, I got this name for my new business. It's a startup, blah, blah blah." But I can't work out the name, and they and I, I look at it. Oh my god! Like you sanitize it so much, you're worried about what everybody thinks. Write down the first thing comes to your mind, like yeah. you do in your titles. Yeah. It, can I just ask you a final question, Mark? Um, so. What are we in? What what series are we in right now? Are you in the uh, you know, which which series are you in? You got so many things going on. What what is your main series right now? What uh, that's gone away? Well, House of Skulls is out now, so yep. that's on Audible. Um, that that's, that's on Audible. Audible. That's, on, yep. that's yep. exclusively on Audible. I've got a art heist series um, about this wild art heist that happened in WA that leads you to Manila and New York and, LA, uh, and, and, and London that comes out on SBS in October. That's called The Mission. And then uh, next year, season two of Stuff the British Style will be on the ABC in Australia and CBC in Canada. Awesome. Yeah. Mark Fennell, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Good. I was pleasure to entirely mine. I'm glad to meet you. <laughs> Lovely to meet you, Mark.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.